We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7 today. The title of the message is The Proud and the Humble. We're going to be talking about pride and humility, or, or the proud and the humble. I'm going to start off by reading a couple pages out of the Valley of Vision, again, which is the prayers of different Puritans. This one is on pride, okay? Pride. Let not pride swell my heart. My nature is the mire beneath my feet, the dust to which I shall return. In body I surpass not the meanest reptile. Whatever difference of form and intellect is mine is a free grant of thy goodness. Every faculty of mind and body is thy undeserved gift. Low as I am as a creature, I am lower as a sinner. I have trampled thy law times without number. Sin's deformity is stamped upon me, darkens my brow, touches me with corruption. How can I flaunt myself proudly? Lowest abasement is my due place, for I am less than nothing before thee. Help me to see myself in thy sight. Then pride must wither, decay, die, and perish. Humble my heart before thee, and replenish it with thy choicest gifts. As water rests not on barren hill summits, but flows down to fertilize lowest vales, so make me the lowest of the lowly, that my spiritual riches may exceedingly abound. When I leave duties undone, may condemning thoughts strip me of pride, deepen in me devotion to thy service, and quicken me to more watchful care. When I am tempted to think highly of myself, grant me to see the wily power of my spiritual enemy. Help me to stand with wary eye on the watchtower of faith, and to cling with determined grasp to my humble Lord. If I fall, let me hide myself in my Redeemer's righteousness. And when I escape, may I ascribe all deliverance to Thy grace. Keep me humble, meek, and lowly. That really touches what we're going to be talking about today. The proud and the humble. If I could have you stand one more time for the reading of our three verses in Peter. Up and down, up and down. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5-7 through seven today. <clears throat> Help if I get there. Okay, verse 5. You younger men, likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you, at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. You guys can be seated. Father, we come before You and we do ask, Lord, that that You would help us, Lord, by Your Holy Spirit, that You would help me to speak clearly, Lord, um, to give those in here, Lord, Your people, Your flock, understanding of Your Word and what You would have for us today, Lord. And Lord, I pray, Father, that that we would all desire humility in our lives, Father. That that we would humble ourselves under Your mighty hand and not have to be made humble. Father, we, we love You and we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. So the main idea of today's message, the big idea would be very simple, be like Christ and not like the devil. I think that's a very... When you, when you just read Scripture as a whole, uh, humility characterizes Jesus Christ and pride characterizes the devil. So in our text today, we, we would definitely want to be like Christ, which is, God purpose, which is God's purpose for our life, and not like the devil. I'm going to read a couple passages real quickly. To touch on that, Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9. We want to be like Christ. It says of Christ, being found in appearance as a man, 
He humbled Himself. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. And there's the pattern. That's the pattern for God's people. Those who humble themselves in the end will be exalted. Now if you want to flip over to Ezekiel chapter 28 real briefly. We're going to read a short passage out of Ezekiel. Just to remind us that we want to be like Christ and not like our enemy, the devil. So this passage in Ezekiel 28 verses 12 through 17, this is referring to the king of Tyre, but I think as, as we read through these verses, you'll see it's also a reference to Lucifer in heaven, I believe. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17, but just listen to the pride that describes not only the king of Tyre, but Lucifer. In verse 12, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onks, the jasper, the lapis, the lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason, by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. And of course we know that's why Lucifer got kicked out of heaven was because of his pride. And so we see that and, and we know the story of Lucifer, Lucifer leading a rebellion in heaven and being kicked out. He exalted himself and was brought low. He was cast down. He was humbled. That's the pattern we see in Scripture. 1 Timothy 3.6 This is the uh, qualifications of an elder, but listen to what it says here. And one of the qualifications being that, that he, he needs or he, he, he does not need to be a new convert so that, why? So that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation and cured by the devil. So, it, so really, just the wisdom of God in that verse, that no matter how gifted a man may be, no matter how well he may be able to teach the Word of God, a new Christian is immature. It doesn't matter who it is. Um, and so that's, that's the pattern in Scripture, that there needs to be some maturity so that a man does not become conceited like the devil did and fall into that condemnation and cured by the devil. Proverbs 16, 18. We see this pattern in Scripture. Pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Have you guys ever seen that, seen that play out in people's lives maybe that you knew? Um, you know, I can remember early on as a Christian, the church that I was attending, it was a large church. And I would say from the, just from the, their, their abilities, the, the, the senior pastor, even the, the associate pastor, the music pastor, they were all what you would call very gifted, very talented. But there is a sense of arrogance about them that I remember thinking of as a new believer and, and, and it really displayed, put, it was put on display one day when the, when the pastor was given an award for something, I don't remember what, and the youth pastor presented him with this award and said, this man has done more for the kingdom of God than a hundred other pastors combined. And I just thought, that's not right. And, and then it was just a few years later, I was no longer, no longer attending that church that I heard that the, 
The music pastor fell into adultery. The associate pastor fell into adultery. And the senior pastor's wife left him because he was always traveling. And, and that verse just always stuck. I was not even confident enough as a young believer to really understand what was going on, but I just remember having that bad feeling. And so I saw this play out. And all these men fell. And it all started with just a lot of pride and arrogance. So as the people of God, we're going to be talking about today just, just pride and humility. And um, so let's, let's start out in verse 5 here. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 5. Really just by way of review, last week guys, we looked at <clears throat> how the elders in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 5. I think all of you guys were here last week. Really last week we looked at how the elders were to shepherd their people. It was really the summation of what we looked at. What, what an elder looks like. How they shepherd the people. Um, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, remember? Not, not because we have to, uh, but doing it voluntarily. Not for, not for money, not for greed, but with eagerness. Not lording it over those who are allotted to your charge, but proven to be examples. That was really the summation of what we looked at last week. What a, what a shepherd of God should look like. And so today, we're going to see in verse 5, in the first part of verse 5, we're going to see this word likewise. Or it may, it may say in the same way. The, in, in, in verse 5, the first half of verse 5, really just the first part of verse 5. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Likewise, or in the same way. That, that phrase means Peter's He's shifting the attention to a different group of people, but he's still discussing the same general subject. He's still discussing elders in the relation to the body. But now he's really talking about the body in relation to the elders, how they are to respond. And he uses the word, he uses the phrase in verse 5, you younger men. A couple different thoughts on this. Uh, generally speaking, these men, the, the men in the church, the, the people in the church, generally speaking, are going to be younger than their pastors. Normally, obviously that's not always the case. Uh, but most commentators that I read think that this phrase is, is literal. He's using this younger men in a literal way. The idea being that the, that the younger, they would be those who... Again, this is just a general statement. They would be those who need this reminder. Those who are younger. They would, they would need this reminder. Those would be more likely to be headstrong or stubborn, if that makes sense. And, and could be contrary. But it applies to the whole congregation. That was pretty much the... Uh, oh, probably the, the overall meaning that I got because it's really not made clear what's made by that younger men. But I think I think it just means younger men in general. They need this they need this exhortation to be subject to their elders. And that's the phrase he uses, be subject to your elders. To line up under is what that to be subject means. To line up under it's a willingness to be supportive of the elders direction. To submit to their leadership. That's the meaning behind this phrase. A willingness to that. Obviously, Peter has talked about in this letter being subject to different authorities, right? The governmental authorities, um, the, the, the slaves and masters, the employee, employer in our day, wives under husbands. And so one thing that we know, he's not asking anybody to submit to ungodly leadership. In other words, if they ask you to sin, right? But the general idea, the willingness should be that for the young men to, to, to be in subject to those who are over them. What would be the opposite of this? What would be the opposite of being subject to your leaders? How about being critical of them? It wouldn't even necessarily have to be something you did outwardly, but just having a critical spirit. Think of it this way, if you guys have worked out into the world, most of you guys have had jobs or you have a job right now, what about the employee that's always criticizing their boss? Doesn't matter what they do, they're just critical of everything they do. That's the idea. They're not being subject to, the, to those who are over them. 
And obviously God knows our heart. He knows our, our thought life. So these things are not just outwardly. These are, these are in our thoughts, in our hearts. A critical spirit, beloved, is if, if you battle critical spirits, a critical spirit is rooted in pride, I believe. That's what, that's what the root of it is. And so it's a willingness. It's a willingness to take their advice, being subject to the elders, to take their advice, to take their counsel, to be guided by them. And obviously it's a willingness to receive in a humble way, the Word as it's being proclaimed and taught. So I think that's really what is, what a, what is behind this. In, in the first part of verse 5, where he says that, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. What would this look like? I think a couple portions of Scripture would give us a, a, a beautiful picture of what this looks like. And again, this applies to the entire flock. Not just a certain group of men. In, in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, listen to this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Do you hear the language in that? Obey your leaders and submit to them as those who keep watch over your souls. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. I think we get another really good picture of what this looks like. Paul says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. I think these are, these are two portions of Scripture that really gives a good picture of what it means, what it looks like to be it Paul's charge or Peter's charge here to be subject to your elders. And he says, all of you, in verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, all of you. I think it was Wayne Grudem that said in his commentary that it would be helpful if, there, if this began a new sentence, maybe even a new paragraph, because really uh, he's moving to a new section here. Basically now, with the rest of this message we're going to look at in these next three verses, he's talking about how the church really deals with one another. So he's moving on from, from the elders to, to, the, to the flock amongst one another. How are we to treat one another? What's our attitude to be towards one another? And so that's where we're going to pick up today. And I really wrestled with this last week of whether to do verses 1-5 through five or verses 1-4. through four. Uh, but starting in verse verse five, uh, part B in verse five, we're gonna have we're gonna have three headings this morning, three three points. One in verse one, one in verse or one in verse five, one in verse six, and one in verse seven. And so the first one in verse five is just we see it very clearly here in verse five. Put on humility. Put on humility. Look at look at verse five. He says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Okay, and then there's a, there's a change. There's like a, there's like a change in thought here. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now we're going to spend a few moments here. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So I just phrased the first point. Put on humility. This phrase, clothe yourselves... Or, or, or clothe, it means to, to tie a piece of clothing to oneself, is what the language is. I think Peter probably had in mind uh, that slaves in those days used to tie a white scarf or an apron over their clothing to distinguish themselves from those who were free. So Peter more than likely had, had that in mind. So in other words, they were to distinguish themselves, right? And so what is he saying? What is Peter telling uh, those who he's writing to by clothing yourselves with humility? In other words, he's saying humility for the people of God, guys. This is for us. Humility should distinguish us. Should it not? That should distinguish us. And, and, and please hear me. As, as, we go, as we talk about humility, guys, a lot of times it's easier said than done, is it not? But it should Characterize our lives. 
It should characterize a believer in Jesus Christ. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Early on. And, and I think we had... Well, I know we had one sermon over it, but, but we kept coming back to it in the Beatitudes. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it be? And, and that, that, that's the person who is entering the kingdom of heaven. And it says they're made poor in spirit. They and only they was the emphasis. And so being a Christian, just starting off coming into the kingdom of God is, is when we humble ourselves before God, is it not? So, so humility, to a certain extent, should characterize us as Christians. Again, we're not talking perfection. There's only one who is perfectly humble, and we know who that was, Lord Jesus Christ. Again, these things, sometimes it's easy to talk about humility. It's easy to preach about. But when you're put in different situations in life, sometimes it's a little harder. So I understand that. I'm not, I'm not preaching that if you're not perfectly humble, uh, because these things are difficult. And God puts us in these situations to sanctify us. I'll, I'll tell you one other thing it's not difficult to do. It's not difficult to boast about how humble you are, is it not? You've ever... <laughs> If you guys get that, it's kind of a joke. You know, I'm, I, you hear somebody boasting about their humility. No, it, seriously though, if, if, if you think in your mind, maybe you don't outwardly say that because that's kind of a funny statement, you know, that I've joked around with different guys over the years. You know, we boast about how humble we are. But in our own minds, if we think we're really humble people, then we're probably not as humble as we think. Um, and that's something that God's always... He's always conforming us into the image of Christ. So it's, all, it's, it's not as easy to practice. Why is it not always easy to practice as I, was, as I was writing this? Well, that's because God is sanctifying us. Is He not? It's one thing to talk about humility, but we're not fully sanctified. Right? Our flesh that we talk about, this flesh that we still battle, right? We've got a new heart, new minds. We're born again, but we still have this unredeemed flesh. And I forget who it was that I read, and this is not a direct quote, but basically within all of us, right? Within all of us, our flesh, it desires to be king. Does it not? In many instances, our flesh desires to be king. We don't want to be under. We don't want to admit we're wrong. And these are all characters of which those traits which describe humility. Many times we don't want to admit we're wrong. Even with our, our closest, even with our spouse, sometimes it's difficult to admit we're wrong. And he says this, he says, All of you, you younger men likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Now he's, he's talking about the church now, right? He's not talking about just uh, directed towards your elders or, or elders directed towards a certain people. He's talking about all of you, the gathering. The local church is really the emphasis here. Of course, we should be this way towards all believers, but, but, but these letters are written towards, uh, to local churches. You know what the local church should be described as? You know a good name that should describe us? The gathering of the humble. It's not always the case, but that should be. We should be the gathering of the humble. Those, again, who have been made poor in spirit. What does it mean, again, to be made poor in spirit? It means that we recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt. When God opens a man's heart and his mind to the truth of their, of their sin through, through His Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we, we come to recognize for the first time in our life that we don't have anything good to offer God. And if we think about it, guys, we're, we're in fellowship with one another in this church. We need to recognize that about our neighbor as well. That we were all made poor in spirit. We all have, have humbled ourselves before a holy God and we are all being sanctified. And so that should cause us to be very gracious with one another. So this whole idea of, of of clothing yourselves with humility. Clothing yourselves with humility. Being 
humble with one another. How about certain doctrines that we, that we come to understand as Christians? I was just trying to think of areas in our life that I have experienced where this may be played out and it may not be played out. But think about, think about in your life as a Christian when God has opened your eyes to maybe, a, maybe a, some glorious truths of His Word, right? Or maybe certain ministries that God has, has given you an excitement for or opened your eyes. Are you humble with your brothers and sisters who maybe aren't there yet? I can say I've been guilty of that in the past of not being humble. Who is it that shows us those doctrines and opens our eyes? It's the Lord. So we're not to go around beating our, beating our brothers and sisters over with a club because they don't see it like we see it yet. Being humble, beloved, means being patient. Okay? It means being patient. That's part of humility. Being patient with one another. This is a command that we're to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. You know, we joke around about having... Maybe you were there at one time. We joke around about those being in cage stage regarding the doctrines of grace and those type of doctrines. And, and we laugh about it, but most of the time, somebody who's in cage stage, they, they, they see something in God's Word and they're excited about it and, and they go around beating people up with those truths. And that's a sign of immaturity. It's not a sign of humility. Humility, I think the best definition is it's an attitude that puts others first. It's an attitude that puts others first. It's, it's seeing your, who you truly are. I think, the, I think the Puritan mentioned that. Just He prayed to help God see His true position before God. That's humility. Listen to Philippians 2, 3, and 4. And I think it defines it in this text. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do you hear that? Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then listen in Colossians 3.12, listen to what humility is associated with. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You hear that? The very fact, guys, that we have been chosen of God should humble us. That God has opened our eyes and granted us repentance that we have humbled ourselves before God should not make us proud, but humble people. And he says, all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now again, the context is those in the local church primarily. This is, this is who this applies to. Because this is one thing I've noticed over the years. And have been guilty of it. And this is, this is the day and age in which we live, right? We live with social media. It's, it's all around us. And so, this, 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 this command, this imperative is to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. Towards our brothers and sisters that we're, that we're together with in the flesh. In the local church. Not only your favorite Facebook group. Because I, I've seen that. It's like there will be believers and they're more, they're more patient and humble towards those people in their little groups on Facebook than we are towards each other as the body of Christ. And what those things cause, those things can cause divisive clicks is what they can cause. Not that those groups are all wrong in and of themselves, but we've got to be careful. Because if we're in these, these like-minded groups on Facebook where we agree with everything, these people are perfectly like-minded that we really don't even know, we don't really know them personally, 
then this can lead and cause us to to uh, not humbly love and serve those those in our church that might not be where we are, if that makes sense. We are commanded to clothe ourselves with humility. That means me and you guys, you guys and one another. And, and obviously it can apply to other Christians as well. But again, it's just the, the doctrine of the local church. It's so important. And we're, and we're commanded to do these things. Humility is when we recognize our position before God. That we don't deserve anything good at all. We deserve nothing. So any, anything that we have from God, we rec- or anything that we have, we, we must recognize that it's from God. Two things here. Without Him, without God, first of all, we have nothing. You understand that? We have nothing without God. 1 Corinthians 4.7 for who regards you as superior? Who regards you as superior? So I'll stop there for just a minute. Have you, have you ever thought in your own mind and heart because you have a, maybe a better understanding of something in the Scriptures that you're superior to somebody else? Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Wow, we, we can't just... Skim over that. What do you have that you did not receive? Ask yourself that, guys. What do you have in your life that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Right? Starting with our salvation. Did we receive our salvation? You betcha. Amen. Why would we ever boast? How, how, would, that, how would that be applied? Maybe, maybe somebody who's not saved. And we're very critical of them. Man, they're just, they're just foolish and they don't understand. And we got to be careful. We need to be humble. How about, again, I've already mentioned this, but your understanding of certain doctrines of Scripture. Do you think that you were so superior you just learned that all on your own? Or did you receive it by a gracious God in His timing? Your passion for a certain ministry. And then we could just apply it to every area of life. Our health. Your marriage. Your children. All of these things. We must not boast. Because without Him, we have nothing. Okay? We have nothing. Without Him, we can do nothing. John 15.5 Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if God has placed you, guys, if he has, if he has given you a, a desire, a abilities, and to serve him, and you see fruit in your life, praise God, but don't forget where it comes from. It's not you and I. It's from the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. The, all good fruit is produced by Him. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Thomas Schreiner in his, in his commentary says this about humility. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Listen to that again. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. It's humility. And then he goes on to say, pride gets upset when another does not follow our own suggestions. Humility, guys. Humility puts others first. It's easy to get along with somebody when they're putting you first. And just think about that. That's mutual. If we're both putting the other person first, it's hard to get offended. And it's easy to get over an offense. That makes sense. I don't know if that came out right. And, and then pride puts self first. Right? Pride puts self first. That's why Jesus said, if you want to come after Me, who did He say to deny? Yourself. Deny yourself. And then come after Me. People who are proud 
regularly want to argue and be divisive in the body. That's what causes arguments. You got either one or two people that are being proud. That's what causes wars and all these things in our world, but particularly in the body of Christ, these things are caused by pride. Pride is everywhere. I went through a Bible study years ago at a church in a men's group on pride, and it just it seemed like or no, we went through a study in Proverbs, and it just seemed like every other question had something to do with pride. And it's just like an octopus that it has its tentacles. And we have to be continually repenting of pride when we see it rise up in our hearts, even as Christians. Just like the, just like the quote that I, uh, that I read from Thomas Schreiner. Just like a machine, there's friction without oil, is there not? There's going to be friction without oil. So in the church, or in a marriage, or any relationship... Without humility, there's going to be friction. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly. I love that quote. And so, that was a lot to say about putting on humility, but why put on humility? So we're going to answer that question. Two subpoints under putting on humility. Why? Why put on humility? We see it there in verse 5. First of all, because God is opposed to the proud. Put on humility because God is opposed to the proud. We don't want, we don't want to be in opposition to God. Clothe yourselves, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for or because God is opposed to the proud. That, that is taken from Proverbs 3.34. Proverbs 3.34 reads, Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. And then James repeats it in James 4, 6. So God is opposed to the proud. Listen to Psalm 138, 6. For though the Lord is exalted, right? We was talking about that in our catechism. He's exalted. He's high and lifted up. Yet it says He regards the lowly. Those who are lowly. Those who are humble. Those who are contrite of heart. But the haughty, the prideful, the arrogant, it says He knows from afar. Have you guys ever thought about what Christ meant when He says in Matthew 7, Depart from Me, I never knew you? Have you ever thought, what does He mean by that? Because He's omniscient. He knows everybody. He knows everything about everybody. I believe Psalm 138.6 really is, is, is telling us what Jesus meant in Matthew 7. The haughty, those who are arrogant and prideful, he, he knows from afar. But not like He knows the lowly. He regards the lowly. It's a saving, intimate knowledge is what it is. And so this can be seen throughout Scripture. God's attitude toward those who are proud. We read some of it about Lucifer, about the king of Tyre. In Proverbs 6, 16 and 17a, it says, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. And one of those is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. The word haughty just means to exalt oneself. To exalt oneself. What do we read in Ezekiel? He exalted himself to magnify oneself. God is in opposition to those who are proud. James calls this kind of earthly wisdom that is rooted in selfishness and arrogance, he calls it demonic. It's demonic. God is opposed to the proud. Flip over to Genesis chapter 4 real quick. And we'll see an illustration of this. Genesis chapter 4. We'll look at the uh, account of Cain and Abel real quickly. Genesis chapter 4. We're just going to look at this, see this truth here. How God opposes the proud. Genesis 4, I'm going to read 1 through 12. And then briefly make a few comments about it. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on earth. So we see in this account, instead of humbly listening to God, because God had must have, it doesn't say in the text, but most commentators think that God, God had mu- He must have revealed His way of what pleased Him as far as an offering. Maybe to Adam and Eve. But Cain chose to bring his own prescribed form of offerings to the Lord. Really a picture of um, representing his self-righteous works. And so it did not please God. He refused to repent of it. And in verse 7, we see that instead of humbly listening to God's warning of his sin, he murdered his brother. We see him continually not, not listening to the Lord, not repenting. In verse 9, he refused. Again, in verse 9, he refused to acknowledge his sin and did not repent. And as a result, we see God banished him to be a wonder of the earth. And in verse 16, it sadly says that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. So we see him continually in his pride refusing to repent. And we see, again, the truth that Peter is revealing to us today that those who are proud are opposed to God and God is opposed to the proud. It's a mutual thing. Those who are proud are opposed to God. That's a true statement from the Scriptures as well. And God is opposed to the proud. So we saw we are to put on humility towards one another, first of all, because God is opposed to the proud. Second reason is because God gives grace to the humble. Right? God gives grace to the humble. Why put on humility? Because God gives grace to the humble. Now turn over to Luke. We'll look at an illustration where God gives grace to the humble. Luke chapter 18. Actually, we're going to see both in this text. God being opposed to the proud. One individual and giving grace to the humble and another individual. Luke 18, verses 9-14. through And this is Jesus telling this parable to a group of Pharisees. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Okay, listen to the pride. God, I thank You that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Okay, do you hear anything coming from the Pharisee? Anything about his sin? Any humility, any confession of sin, any acknowledgement of sin, any God forgive me, I'm a sinner, none of that. It's, it's pride and arrogance exalting himself. And then verses 13 and 14. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. All of these are, and that culture was a sign of remorse and humility. And then, he, and then he says this, the closest thing to a sinner's prayer in the Scripture right here, guys. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified, right? A legal declaration, right with God. 
This man went to his house justified rather than the other. And here we see it. For everyone who exalts himself like this Pharisee, like Lucifer, like King of Tyre, it says, will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. God gives grace to the humble. You see that, guys? Those who exalt themselves, they're going to be humble. And I'll speak more to that later. Maybe in this life, but definitely in the next. Those who humble themselves, or did I say that right? Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Definitely in the next life. There we see the pattern. So I ask you today before we move on, have you humbled yourself? Have you humbled yourself in this saving way? Have you acknowledged your sin? Have you humbled yourself by acknowledging your sin debt to a holy God? By acknowledging that I'm not thinking about other people, Lord. I am the sinner. I am guilty. And I deserve your judgment in hell. That is repentance. When we humble ourselves, we acknowledge our sin, our need of a Savior, and we turn to God's only provision, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't, turn to Him today. Turn to Christ today in humility. And it says, He who humbles Himself will be exalted. So God gives grace to the humble. Listen to Isaiah 66 verse 2. The Lord says, For My hand made all these things, talking about heaven and earth, My hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Here's the language again, guys. But to this one I will look. But to this one I will look. To Him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at My Word. Another description of somebody who is who is humble is somebody who trembles at the Word of God. And so the question would be is, do you tremble at God's Word? And so we're on our second point now. We will move quicker these next two points. In verse 6, so in verse 5, we saw to put on humility. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud and He gives grace to the humble. Secondly, in verse 6, practice wisdom. Practice wisdom. So he says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, so because God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And as I was writing that, I just this phrase came into my mind. You know, I'm not the smartest guy around. But if God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble, then I think it's the wisest thing we can do is to humble ourselves under the hand of, a mighty, of His mighty hand, right? It's the wise thing to do. If you'll notice when you read the Scriptures, like in Proverbs especially, humility and wisdom always go together. The person who is wise is the person who is humble. Always. Because those who are humble, they, they fear God, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear in the Lord, humility, they always go together. So obviously it's a wise thing to heed the warning of Scripture. To humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And again, we can't forget the context of the letter, right? Persecution and suffering is the context of this letter. So I don't want to lose track of that. And so in in the context, we're, we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. What has Peter been talking about? As God, in His sovereignty, has brought difficult situations to these believers' lives. He's brought suffering, opposition, persecution. And so he's calling on them to submit, to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, to, to quietly submit to God's will. Right? Remember verse 12 in chapter 4? It says, uh, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. 
And we, and we, and we, we came to understand later that that fiery ordeal is just this, this suffering, this persecution, this reviling from the world. When this comes upon you for your testing. And verse 19 talks about suffering according to the will of God. In other words, God is present. God is not distant. God is allowing this. God is bringing this. So when these things are happening to our lives, beloved, and, and, we, and we experience suffering of all kinds, we have to remember that it's, it's, it's God is bringing it into our lives for our testing to purify us. And so we're not to complain and murmur to God about our circumstances, but rather submit to Him. Rather humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We don't want to despise His discipline like the writer of Hebrews says. The suffering is for our good and is ordained by God. So we submit to, we submit to Him. We, we humble ourselves before Him and not complain out against Him. So we either trust the Lord, okay? Remember this, when we're going through difficult times, we can either trust the Lord we remember who He is, the one who rescued us. I'm sorry, I jumped a little bit ahead, guys. I, jumped, I, I skipped one line that's really important for the context of what I was just going to say. The suffering is ordained by God. Okay, The mighty hand of God, it says. The mighty hand of God, meaning the omnipotence and the strength of God. That's what that phrase means. It's the language... That's used in, in the Exodus language. This, this omnipotent strength of God through which He defeated Pharaoh and delivered Israel. There's many, many Scriptures that use this language. Deuteronomy 6.21 is one of them. You shall say to your son, whenever your son sees you setting up these monuments for the Lord, and he asks you, you're to say to him, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And the Lord brought us from Egypt with His mighty hand. That's the language. And so this is what I was... I, I skipped to this line here. We are either to trust the Lord, the One who delivered us, right? The Exodus is a picture of Christ delivering us from sin. From the slavery and bondage of sin. And so we can either trust the Lord the one who rescued us from slavery, not to Pharaoh, but from sin and Satan, we can trust Him or we can murmur and complain to the Lord just like Israel did in the wilderness, if you remember that story. He delivered them from the bondage of Egypt and what they do? They complained and they murmured to the Lord. And so we have a choice as well. When we go through difficult seasons in this life and suffering. We can murmur to God, we can complain to God, or we can trust Him. We're never promised a trouble-free life. But what are we promised? Eternal life. That's what we're promised. Eternal life. And so His promise in this text, we see, is that He will exalt us at the proper time. At the end of verse 6. At the proper time. That phrase, at the proper time, means... That time which God sees fit for His glory and your welfare. And only God knows that. And maybe it'll be in this life. Maybe. Not always. You can think of somebody like Joseph in the Scriptures that that's definitely true of, right? Remember the story of Joseph? Sold in slavery by his brothers. Right? Falsely accused by a woman. Potiphar's wife of raping her. Put in prison. And then through God's providence, only to be made second in charge in Egypt behind Pharaoh. You remember what he said when he told his brothers later. He rescued them. God placed him there and used him to rescue his family from the famine. And he told his brothers what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So, so the Lord exalted him in his due time. But it's not always going to be in this life. And so I believe that phrase, at the proper time, is always applies to the next life. He who humbles himself will be exalted in that day, in his appearing, when we stand before him, when we, 
Those who have humbled themselves in this life are exalted in the next. And those who exalt themselves in this life, like we see so many people doing, I don't need Christ. I don't need His forgiveness. I'm a good person. I've got my money, my power, my prestige. There's coming a day when they're going to be humble. But I believe that's what this is talking about. Always in the next life. Psalm 18.27 in the ESV says this, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. That's the principle in Scripture. If not in this life, in the next. And then lastly in verse 7, trust in His providence. Trust in His providence. It says, uh, let me read 6 and 7 together. Therefore humbly, or therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Okay, this is taken from Psalm 55.22. And so obviously, he's saying one way, to humble our, one way to humble ourselves under His mighty hand is by casting all of our anxiety, all of our cares that we have in this world. Anxieties, cares, burdens. Casting upon Him. That means throwing it upon Him. When we do that, what are we demonstrating? We're demonstrating that we trust Him. Right? That we trust Him. Because if we don't, again, we're resorting to pride. What does pride say? We have to fix everything ourselves. I can fix it. Self, 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 self. And again, beloved, none of these things are easy, okay? None of these things are easy. But this is what Peter's saying. We need to remember, guys, we need to remember that God ordains our circumstances. That's why... Um, I entitled that last point, Trust in His Providence, because God is the one who ordains our circumstances to continually point out to us. He puts us... Do you think God's sovereign over your life? Every area? Amen? He puts us in positions in our life. Why? To give us our most comfortable life? No. In many ways, to point out how weak we are. He wants you to know how weak you are today. You know what happens when you realize how weak you are? He makes you into a person who prays. He wants us to be people of prayer. I shared this, I don't know, a week or two ago on GroupMe. You guys, if you want to go back, it's, it's like a 15 minute section out of one of Paul Washer's sermons. And it, it was entitled something about making us weak, but he was stressing that very point. That's, that, that's what God's doing in, 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 in a child of God's life continually revealing to us how weak we are so we'll be people of prayer. He doesn't want us being self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency sufficiency is rooted in pride. So even, again, you can see, even us as believers, we, we, we have to be on, on guard against pride that comes up in our lives. Beloved, God can handle it. He can handle your, your anxieties, your, your, your cares. Life can get very difficult, but He can handle it. Have we not entrusted our very souls to Him? Right? That's what we entrust to Him when we come to Him for salvation. Can He not handle these things in our lives? Of course He can. These things that would lead us, these, these anxieties, these these cares, many times they lead us to be discontented. They can lead us to be discouraged, to fear, even despair, sometimes questioning God. And so we're to yield these things to the Lord. And then Matthew 14.30, guys. Listen to this. This is when Jesus is walking on the water and Peter's walking towards Him. But seeing the wind, he, Peter, became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And it says immediately, Jesus took out his hand and took hold of him. Just to, just to remind us, guys, that last phrase in verse 7, he cares for you. Do you realize that? 
God cares for you. He cares for you. You're His adopted child and God cares for you. And, and why did I choose that Scripture in Matthew 14.30? Sometimes that's the best prayer to pray. It's just, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Help me. I need Your help. I was praying that sitting there walking up here a while ago silently. Lord, help me. I feel distracted today and I need Your help. Guys, He cares for you. He has saved you and He has a purpose for your life. And He will sustain you. He will sustain you until your time is done. Go back and read Matthew chapter 6. He's going to take care of the flowers and the birds. He'll take care of you. And in closing, I just want to remind you and tell you that you serve a God who has told you to come to Him and pray. Have you not? He tells us to come to Him and pray. That's what all this casting anxiety and care, it's a picture of going to Him in prayer. He's told us to trust Him. He's told us to come to Him and He hears you. We can take that for granted that God hears our prayers. He hears you. When we do this, guys, when we come to Him with our anxiety, with our cares, with those areas in our lives that are troubling us, guess what we're doing at that time? We are humbling ourselves. I can't fix it, Lord. I trust in You. I trust You. I trust that You're good. I trust that You, want, you have the best for me, for my family. I trust You. That's humbling ourselves. And so I, I wanted to tell you a story to close that I know I've probably told some in here, but it reminded me of this very thing that God hears our prayers and we need to be reminded of that very simple thing. So there was a man, probably the first year I started going to the bus station, he was a bus driver. His name was Joshua. And he was from India. A little short guy from India. So the first time, I know my wife was down there with me, and I was preaching, and this man, and I, I, I just immediately thought, just, just naturally, of seeing his appearance, that he was probably going to object to the gospel. It's not right thinking that, but that's what I was thinking. I seen him talking to her, and so I thought, yep, here comes an argument. And they talked for a few minutes. I finished up, and she brought him over. Again, his name was Joshua. I'll never forget this man. And so he told us briefly his story that he, he grew up in India under Christian parents. He said before he was born, his parents were Hindu and his dad was on the streets in India and heard a street preacher in India preaching the gospel. And through that, through that encounter, he, his dad came to Christ and then his, his mom came to Christ and so he got to live in a Christian home. But what caught his dad's attention he was listening to that man preach and this man was saying that this God hears your prayers. This God hears. And that's being a Hindu, worshiping all these millions of gods, that's what caught his attention. And that's why he went up and spoke to the man. I want Tell me more about this God who hears, who can hear me. And he ended up, he ended up coming to Christ through that. And of course Joshua was weeping, telling me this story. Begging me not to ever stop preaching on the street because that was his testimony. I saw him a few other times after that. He'd come running across the parking lot, brother, brother. And then I haven't seen him in many years. But I thought of that story, guys. We can take it for granted, right? We got the Word of God. We read it. But God hears our prayers. Amen? So in, so in other words, like the false gods of Hinduism... Our God is not indifferent. He is a personal God. He's working all things according to the counsel of His will for His glory. And don't forget it as, you, as His child for your good. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank You for the reminder that You, in Your Word, Lord, that You care for us. 
Father, that You care for us, that You desire us to come to You, that we don't bother You, we don't wear You out. Nothing in our life You see as insignificant, but You desire us as Your children to come to You, not only with our sins, Lord, but with all of our issues, our problems, our fears, our worries, our anxiety, our cares. You want us to come to You and You want us to trust You. And You're working all things for our good according to the counsel of Your will. So Father, I pray that You will help all those here today, Lord, to to trust You more, including myself, that we would trust You, Lord, in in the... what we would say the little things and the large things. And Father, I pray for anybody here who does not know You, Lord, who has never humbled themselves before You, Lord. Lord, that You would, through Your Holy Spirit and the truth of Your Word, that You would humble them, that You would cause them to be poor in spirit, and that they would cry out like that text collector, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Lord, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.